morning, everybody. Turn your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at the Christmas story today and next week in Luke's account from Luke chapter 2. Today, just the first seven verses. Um, Nine years ago, um, I took on a, this will surprise nobody, I took on a part-time job. Uh, working for um, Brentwood Baptist Church uh, near, near, you know, near, near our house. And, um, uh, and my, my job was to, and this was new, starting around, this, around Christmas time. It was brand new nine years ago. And I, my, my responsibility was to provide some sort of wisdom, counsel, research, you know, biblical uh, stuff to help the preachers of their different campuses uh, preach better, okay? So I was, my title was uh, uh, research assistant. So, I, so that, was, that was my job. And so as it was starting around, you know, the, the Advent season, I felt, and it was my first time, I felt this enormous pressure to come up with something whiz-bang, really, you know, cool and creative way of talking about Christmas because, you know, their pastor's been there a long time and he's in his 60s. He's preached Christmas 45 times in his lifetime, you know. Like, I've got to come up with some really interesting, nuanced, historical context, linguistic thing to make this Christmas series really stand out for Brentwood Baptist Church. Like, that's the pressure that that I felt in my in my heart, and so I, you know, tried to come up with some stuff, and I put it on paper, and I emailed it out to everybody. And a couple weeks later, we're meeting in the office of of the senior pastor and the, the five or six of the campus pastors. We're sitting around talking, and and this is the way that that Mike began the the message, the the, the meeting. He said, "Boys, do not assume your people know anything about the Christmas story." Just, just don't assume that. And his point was that many of us are more familiar with the traditions that are associated with Christmas or the traditions that are associated with our culture's expression of Christmas than we are just the story from the text. And so... Out loud, he said, so don't try and get cute with Christmas. Don't try and come up with some whiz-bang, interesting side facet than anybody else. All right, Tim's, what you got for us? (laughs) Nothing, sir. Micah said that every Christmas. I've been there nine years sitting in that office. And every Sunday after Thanksgiving, he looks at now the eight and nine of them and says, do not get cute with Christmas. Just tell them the story because they don't know the story. We're not like they think they do. So I'm going to honor that counsel today. And we're going to read Luke 2, 1 through 7. And I'm going to stop and explain and just stop and explain and make a little comments here or there. And then we'll go to the Lord's table together in response. So look with me at Luke 2, verse 1 and 2 to begin with. Okay. Luke says, In those days, 
a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing in Syria. This sounds like very specific historical information, doesn't it? He's got names and places, etc., etc. And we've made a lot of advances in 2,000 years of our understanding of ancient history in this part of the world. Just a couple weeks ago, I read an article where we found some uh, coins that, that were silver that dated to the Maccabean period and were stamped according to, the, to, to that people group, which is the time period between uh, the end of, of Malachi and uh, the book of, of Matthew. Um, we even have coins that go way back to King David. They got his name on it. So we've made a lot of advances that actually validate the scriptures from a historical and archaeological perspective. Um, yet in all of our advances with regard to history, with regard to archaeology, the thing that Luke says here, we just don't know much about from other sources. We just have them in Luke. We have records of censuses that were taken in other areas. We, uh, we have Egypt right next door. Uh, that they took a census every 14 years. And we actually have those censuses from dating from A.D. 20 to A.D. 240. Um, we have some of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, we have some of his handwritten documents on statistics and taxation um, that would have come from different censuses, okay, or censi, I'm not sure what that is, but that's, here you go. Uh, we know that Augustus did complete a reorganization of his administration around Rome at the time, but we don't have a single Roman record of this decree that Caesar Augustus so-called issued, a, a quote, decree. Okay? So what, Luke is, what we think Luke is saying is there is that he basically sent a directive to Herod and said, hey, take a census. And it was formal in the sense that it was an administrative directive, but there was no grand decree made that we can have uh, our record of. So Augustus tells Herod, take a census, and Herod gets to work. Look at verse 3. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Now that is a weird way of taking a census, is it not? Did you all participate in the 2020 census? Did you all not put your thing in the mail like I didn't put my thing in the mail? Did you all have somebody come to your door and wonder why you didn't put your thing in the mail and they were so annoyed that they had a job that made them come to your, your door? That's the way I got treated. Um, anyway, so and I wasn't like making a political statement about, you know, why I'm like not putting my census in the mail. I just didn't remember to put the thing in the mail but, or, or even take my time to do it. But that's a pretty to, to good, easy way. Like just have everybody fill out a form, send in your form. Um, have a, uh, I have my, my sister-in-law worked for the census in the state of California in 2020. She you know, managed census, census takers during that season. They would go around to the house so you could stay. But that's not what Herod does. Herod has everybody go back to their own town to be registered. And there's only one other example that we have in antiquity, and that was in Egypt. They did this in 104 AD. So, and Romans... When they carried out their own census, they did not do it this way. This is an unusual uh, thing here. And it's unusual because of Herod. That's the, that's the key here. Herod would have been the one to carry out Caesar's bidding. So Herod did it this way because Herod loved Herod. 
Herod loved Herod. He did everything to protect or glorify himself and his legacy and his reputation. So by requiring the Jews to return to their birthplace and doing it differently than another Roman leader would have done, Herod is saying, hey, Jews, I'm playing nice with you. I've got to do this Roman thing, but I'll do it in this way that's not a Roman way. I'll do it in, in this way. So it, it gives them the appearance that he's playing nice with them when they're actually pretty annoyed with him as a leader. So he gets the job done, and he does it in a way that gives him more favor in a relationship with the Jewish people. So that's why we think everybody went to their hometown to be registered. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David. And he went to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Now that note there about verse 5, that Mary went along, is really fascinating because she was not required to go. She was not legally required or obligated to go in any way. And she was pregnant. And I don't, I mean, I've never been pregnant. But I'm pretty sure if I was pregnant, I would not want to take a long trip on a donkey or walk to my husband's, to my in-laws. Right? <laughs> I just wouldn't think I would want to, I want to do that. Um, when, when Holly and I were, were first having Trey, we, we took a, a, new, a new role during that pregnancy at Forest Hills Baptist Church in in Nashville. And um, uh, we started in April. Holly was, you know, 20 some odd weeks pregnant and Trey was born in, on July 13th. That was his birthday. So as it so happened, the third week or fourth week of June, the youth group had already had a pre-planned week-long mission trip in South Mexico. So Holly was supposed to be 36 weeks pregnant on our first child and I'm in Mexico. All right, so we negotiated something with the church. Hey, I will go to Mexico for two days and fly back home to be with my wife in case something goes crazy with our first baby, right? She was not going to Mexico. Lord, I barely got to Mexico and had to come right back. Like that was just kind of the, the nature of things. And, and that's human nature. That's not Western culture nature. It's, it's weird that Mary would go. But Joseph is choosing the lesser of two evils here, right? He's being with Mary for this special birth. And if you know the other parts behind this part of the Christmas story, Joseph is aware of this very special birth that he and Mary are getting ready to be a part of, of course. Um, and despite all the risks they're associated with her traveling or missing out on this event, he decides to take her with her. And even though she did go with him, if you notice this little nuance in verses 6 and 7, Joseph may have missed the actual birth. Look at verse 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth, and she wrapped him room available for them. Now, read those verses again, and let's think through some of the things that Ken just said. That God took on flesh. Why did he take on flesh to come here? Well, two, as a human being live the life that you and I cannot live and actually die for our place. That's the purpose of the coming and the coming in the flesh to becoming born. You would think 
that it would be a very grand thing, wouldn't it? But it wasn't. She gave birth and she wrapped him tightly in cloth. Okay? She, had these, she had nothing to put on the baby. She had these long strips of cloth that weren't actual clothes and she wrapped them around and around him to clothe him. And the fact that she is the one doing it points to the likelihood that she, she may very well, many scholars think that she was alone. And she lays him in a manger or a stable. or uh, And this could have been a home that was poor and the animals lived in the same house, same shelter as the family. This could have been a cave dwelling. It could have been the courtyard of the inn where the animals were set outside. We don't know. But what we do know is this. We have poverty, we have obscurity, and we have rejection. Poverty, obscurity, and rejection. God in the flesh coming to live the life that you and I could not live, coming to pay the price for the wrath of God, to actually die. And he does not come in grand form. He comes in poverty and obscurity and rejection. When, um, when I was pastoring a church at, at, um, in South Carolina, we had a, 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 a friend, I had a friend named Ryan, an acquaintance named Ryan. And uh, his, his, um, his in-laws were very you know, strong, wonderful members of the, of the church. And so we got to know Ryan by extension of his dating and then later marrying one of their daughters. Okay, And they, in the course of time, you know, uh, married and, and, and became pregnant. And if, if there was a, a family that was going to have the perfect birth moment, this is that family. And by that, I mean all the, the perfect engagement party. I mean the perfect hair, the perfect smock dresses. the per- You know what I'm saying? Like just everything perfect, right? And so everything. Now, you can't plan everything, as they would later find out. But but you, but you could do your best to put on a grand six-month party off and on. Uh, and did, did anybody else have that experience, or is it just, y'all are looking at me like this is the worst story ever. Are we okay? Y'all okay? This is Christmas. Okay, all right. All right. So, she, so, um, this, but, so just, just think to yourself, you know, everything perfect, like the blonde hair, the perfect bob, the, the dresses, like everything, like super smile, beautiful family, all of that, right? And it's the first baby, so it should be. It should have all of those, it should have all of those things. And right, so when it came time to, to, have, to have the baby, it was like, you know, you know, the, you know your contractions, they're, you're still got, you're 20 minutes apart, you're 10 minutes apart. It's like, okay, now, now, it's, now it's time to go. And it's like a 20 to 30-minute drive to the hospital for them. And by the time they left home comfortably, thinking everything was fine, by the time they got to the hospital, there was a baby in her hands. She had had a baby in the back of a Tahoe, okay? <laughs> and so Ryan, you know, they get there, and they just go on in, and you know, everything's fine, and whatever. Ryan comes out a few hours later. Somebody has taken his car, cleaned it, Parked it, <laughs> and then all of these, all of these things. Everything was supposed to be perfect, but instead, it was the back of a Tahoe. Right? You just, you just, you just don't know. The Son of God is coming to be born, and we have obscurity and poverty and rejection. How did these things come to happen? You have a decree by a pagan emperor in Rome. 
You have a corrupt and selfish local ruler orchestrating the entire decree to his own political gain. And you have obscurity and you have poverty and you have rejection for both Mary and Joseph and the son. And in those things, you know what we get? Christmas. We get God in the flesh living the life that we could not live to come and pay the price that we cannot pay. You know what this tells me? Christmas is like so perfect. I just, I, I love, I was driving around Thursday, like the lights were incredible. I'm like, gosh, just I got the music going. I got, you know, the, I almost reared somebody, but that's another part of the story. They're like, because I was just soaking it all in, you know, and, and it's like, it's so perfect. It's such a sweet and sentimental and, and you, kids are home from college and blah, 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 blah. And yet its roots are in pagan rule in poverty and obscurity and in rejection. And so if you're feeling those things because Christmas is not sweet and it's not sentimental, I want you to know that Jesus identifies with that. That the Lord identifies with you in those moments because it's roots. God coming to be here wasn't sweet and it wasn't sentimental. It was world-changing and world-changing is revolutionary. So when you're thinking about Christmas, as wonderful and sweet and sentimental as it is, remember that its roots are in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, orchestrating pagans and poverty and obscurity and rejection to save the world, to save the world. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the very raw text that reminds us of your um, grace to us being so loving and, and, and caring and sovereign and providential to orchestrate world events in such a way that is not you know, removed from our reality. The story is not removed from our reality. It is not utopia. It is real. It is down, it is quite literally down to earth. And so we, we relish in that truth this morning. And we marvel that Christ would become flesh. To live as a human being, to die as a human being, so that he could indeed accomplish our salvation on our behalf. And that's why we come to the table today. It's, 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 we, we come because he came to give his life as a ransom. And we partake in that today.